All right, this is uh, welcome to episode one, very first one of uh, Down the Rabbit Hole with Heavy Metal, metal sorry, Heavy Metal Baseball. Uh, I'm here with uh, my good friend Robert Riggins. Robert. Hello. Uh, real quick, the, the purpose of what we're going to do here is really just, A, we're going to talk baseball hitting and try to simplify high-level baseball concepts and explore and really just kind of getting, as the podcast say, go down the rabbit hole of baseball, baseball hitting, baseball pitching. Uh, nothing is off topic. Nothing's not worth exploring. But uh, for the first podcast we're going to do, Robert's kind of drawn up a little bit of a, a script to talk about the myths about hitting. And the current myths that are going on about hitting still today about what hitters should be doing when trying to hit a baseball. And Robert, what is item one that you say are the things that players are being taught that's just not working anymore? Yeah, um, I, I think it's a lot easier to, to put all these ideas on a podcast instead of going through a 47-page uh, Twitter thread trying to explain my thought process. Um, so when I moved to the panhandle the first thing that i kept hearing and i used to hear it all the time when i was a high school coach uh is don't dip your back shoulder yeah is that something that yeah, you... i've heard that after you and i talk so some of the, the the kids on my daughter's softball team they've been taught the same thing uh so because i've asked them like so if somebody told you not to dip that back shoulder they just shake their head yes so it's something i wasn't familiar with while i was coaching high school baseball uh, but I'm hearing it quite a bit now that you know that I've looked more into it on the private side of what we're doing, because you know when you're coaching your own team, you're only coaching the things that you know how to coach. You're not really paying attention to what everybody else is coaching. Yeah, private uh, private lessons have been an eye opener. I, I had, yeah, I had no idea what went on, went on when, in the private world of baseball uh, lessons until I moved here. Uh, yeah, I didn't either. Uh, yeah, all, outside of the fact that everybody around here seemed to take lessons from the time they were six until they were uh, 18 and they couldn't hit. That's the only thing that I kept seeing was a bunch of guys that were spending a lot of money and then they just didn't hit well. So I always doubted what was being taught, but uh, I didn't get into it until you and I kind of joined up and started listening. I started listening to kids and asking them, what are you trying to do here? And like, what's the concept and why are you going after it? And half found that is they are dipping, they've been taught not to dip the back shoulder. So. You know, the question you've got here is why do you think that high school coaches really stress this? The justification that I've always heard is if you dip the back shoulder, you're, you're going to tend to pop up more. And I think I think there's some coaches that they, they do it the right way. They don't want them to dip the back shoulder or, like, lean back when they're loading, which is I, – I would agree with that. But they want their shoulders to be square during the rotation – and you know if you go if you're listening to this you know all five of our listeners that, that listen to the first episode you know you go look up a picture of mike trout or, or christian yelich or, or anybody like that um you're going to see that their inside shoulder is always below their outside shoulder when they're trying to hit i mean you have to rotate around the spine you have to be able to reach a ball that's below your shoulders you're, you're gonna have to i mean dip right. the back shoulder yeah and the thing with me is it doesn't some things that uh, you know you're going through as we talk about your thesis and stuff you've put out that's uh, proven scientifically and it's always great to have that. The one of the things that for me was always it never made sense because right if every pitcher that I'm teaching I want him to keep the ball low, eventually you have to learn how to hit that low pitch and if my shoulders are level, then I'm just driving that ball into the ground, you know, which is what as a pitching coach when I was what I wanted. You know, you had a kid go out there and throw a six-pitch inning and do three ground balls. You slapped him on the back and said, that a kid, but he kept that ball down. And one of the things we looked at for pitchers was a combination of them elevating their pitches and also being minus three to four mile per hour on their fastball. So that dangerous combination of elevating a pitch and losing some spike on that so the guy could get the ball in the air. So, you, know, you, you mean you've talked in the past, you're – kind of frustration as you as you were playing it was the same thing as induced ground balls as a pitcher and then somebody would go and say oh by the way hit ground balls right and I, I was kind of shocked to even today uh, talking to some kids last week in high school that there's that's still being taught today is swing down on the ball 
hit the ball on the ground. Yeah, well, I, I think we should we should segue with this first is if you're a high school kid uh, listening to this or you're a high school coach, like, first of all, if you're a kid, don't go throw your coach under the bus and say, hey, you know, <laughs> listen to these two Dilberts on the podcast totally blowing up everything you've ever taught me about hitting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you can you can bring it to his attention, but, you know, he's still the guy that fills up the lineup card. So uh, take take that into consideration when you're doing it. Um, but yeah, they they talk about uh, swinging down to try to create backspin. Well, that's I guess we should finish the the back shoulder thing first. We uh, can yeah, I, yeah. I jumped around on you a little bit there. <laughs> well, with the, so when you're in the hitting position, you start out in in a in a hip hinge, and when you rotate, that turns into a side bend, and you you've got to maintain that uh, those positions to be able to hit balls, especially lower in the zone. Um, I would say if you're a high school kid or, or even if you're a high school coach or just a coach in general and you're you're curious, like, well, okay, well, how would this show up? Go ahead and, and put a ball, um, like, at your knees on a tee and put it low and inside and try to get into a position to just hit that ball. And uh, tell me if you, you don't have to side bend or, or essentially bend over to reach that pitch in a powerful position you're not going to be able to keep your shoulders flat to the ground or parallel to the ground and try to hit that you're still going to have six seven inches of space between your flat barrel and the ball uh, so i would suggest doing that as far as swinging down um yeah we you know we uh we, we, we i feel like i've totally nicked that theory in the butt especially when uh I'm able to like fully put out my thesis, but well, kind of talk a little bit about what your thesis was, right? So me and you know who we know what it is. Some of the people that have followed you on Twitter understand what it is. Um, really, just in the short, in the most probably the easiest way to what was your thesis? What were you trying to get at, and what did you find in your research? Uh, so my thesis was, I mean. The, re the whole reason I did it is because I wanted a job in college baseball. I've been trying to get a job for ten years and comparing I wasn't qualified so I was like well fine I'll, I'll prove scientifically that I am qualified so um, I wanted to look at the whole swinging down to create backspin and if that was a valid theory so I, I came up essentially with three questions what's the most ideal batted ball mm -hmm. okay what collision most likely would create that batted ball and then what bat path most likely creates that collision and so if you scale those things back um, you, you intuitively kind of get an idea but you you really don't really know. I mean, it, Rapsodo came on the market. Um, Blast Motion came on the market. All these high-level uh, pieces of tech that, that weren't available to Joe Schmoes, you know, you, you could go out and buy one. I mean, when I bought a Rapsodo, I was, I was supposed to get a car that summer. Uh, but instead of buying a car, I, I bought a, a hitting wrap soda. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, this summer I was supposed to get a car and, and I bought an Edutronic camera. So, you know, when Edgertronic and Rapsodo figure out how to make those things drive, I'll be... You'll be all far, right? <laughs> be sitting pretty. So we, we've collected all the thesis data, and what we have saw is when you swing down, you actually swing slower. You have lower exit velocities. Uh, one thing that is correct is you are going to have higher backspin RPMs, which is totally understandable, but your chance of uh, hitting a ball with backspin RPM with the data set that we have you're looking at a 13% chance out of the balls that we hit. You have 13, uh, you know, 13 chance of, of putting backspin on a ball when you're swinging down. And, and the problem is, is the ball's going down at a negative angle, you're swinging down at a negative angle, and you're leaving yourself a surface area about the size of a dime that you're trying to hit at high speed. So if you want to create backspin on a ball by swinging down, try to hit the bottom half of a dime. Yeah, which, which suggests that, you know, for a very long time, we've kind of, I think a lot of us have underestimated, because one thing I know we'll talk about later is a baseball player is an athlete, probably not in this podcast or this episode specifically, but, you know, a lot of these guys that have abided this theory, right, it speaks to how amazing of an athlete they are, that they could have any amount of success swinging the bat this way. Like you said, the, the analogy is clipping a dime at 90 miles an hour. Uh, well, that's only gone up and up and up. You know, now you're clipping a dime at 96, 97 miles an hour. Uh, kind of speaks to athleticism, what these guys are doing. But you've put that out, and, you know, there's some things on, on your Twitter follow, at Serve Lead Coach, that, you know, you've hinted at how you're going to blow this whole theory up. 
and the results of it in the baseball physics. So we've talked about some of the results. What are the physics that are going on with your your thesis as well, talking specifically around the baseball? Uh, so when you when you hit a ball, uh, what happens is, I guess to keep it real simple, um, the bat has five times the momentum of the ball. So the bat's going to win the collision. So that whole theory that the harder the pitcher throws, the more power you're going to have, mm-hmm. like he supplies all the power, I mean, technically that's true, but it's such a small correlation. It's 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 not really worth like guessing how hard the pitcher's going to throw. You don't have any control over that. And for one mile per hour of pitch speed, it only translates to like 0.2 miles per hour of exit velocity, which again you can't control that. But you can't control how hard you're swinging. So when you do make contact, um, energy is transferred through the ball in a straight line. So on a linear plane. And so it's, it's going to transfer between exit velocity and spin. Mm-hmm. So the further the center of masses are away from each other, the more that you're going to have spin on the ball. Right. The closer the center of masses are, the, the more exit velocity you're going to have. So you need a balance of both. After 3,000 RPMs of, of spin, um, and this, this is from Dr. Alan Nathan's research, um, like a lot of this stuff isn't mine, like I'm... I'm a good synthesizer, mm-hmm. like you know, like Thomas Edison or, or those guys. They were they were able to synthesize a, a bunch of information from other areas and put it together to to form a, a huge theory. Um, but after 3,000 RPMs, the air around the ball becomes turbulent and actually slows the ball down. Um, and in order to even create a ball with that high of RPM, you have to you have to miss hit it. Your offset between the center masses has to be large enough to create that amount of spin. So that old theory of you want to put as much backspin on the ball as possible so it'll help it carry, it's, it's kind of a flawed theory. 15 to 2,500 RPMs is the ideal rate. After 2,500 RPMs, the effect starts to plateau. And then at 3,000, not only is the ball slowing down because the air around it is so turbulent, but most likely you miss hit the ball so much that there's just not enough exit velocity to help the ball carry. Well, so playing devil's advocate, so you mentioned Christian Yelich. Uh, Christian Yelich, I saw, I saw him doing a drill that he had picked up from Barry Bonds. Uh, my, my Christian Yelich story, I, uh, you know, I, w- I was with the Brewers, and I was at spring training for like 12 days, and you know, I'm a complete baseball fan, and, and now all of a sudden I work for the Brewers, and Christian Yelich is in the hallway as I'm walking to like where I'm supposed to start my day, and the whole time, like I'm freaking out. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm like telling myself, be a professional, be a professional. <laughs> play it cool. Yeah, play, play it cool. <laughs> and uh, I see him and I go, hey, man, how's it going? And he's That's like, just... <laughs> yeah, gives me a head nod. Like, and I'm pretty sure after I walk by, he's like, who is this freaking guy? Like, who let this idiot in the facility? <laughs> Check credentials after that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Craig Council is like right down the hallway. And, and Murphy from Arizona State, now he's with the Brewers. I mean, I'm like losing my mind. Yeah, but it's that same, would be. Yeah, that, that's that's the uh, whether you know whether you're a little league coach, whether you're a high school coach. Uh, I, I think you're lo- if you have any love for the game, one day you want to put on the jersey. Yeah, but that's the, it, the day you start playing baseball, right? You want to put on a jersey, and it's the big league jersey. And it's I've always you've sent you've shown I've seen that picture. It's really cool. You had and still have. A big league jersey. All right. I wish I wasn't allowed to keep that. Oh, well, no, you so, had. Yeah. You just had I, a picture. Yeah, I, I asked. Like, when we were cleaning out our lockers for COVID, they were like, they, they were like, you need to take everything. And I was like, well, what can I take? And uh, they're, well, you have to leave your jersey top and your pants. And so I, you know, I left it. But, uh, you know, if the Brewers ever want to send me a Christmas gift. Is that, yeah, because that was pretty <laughs> cool. Well, with that, so before I met you, because uh, – and like I said, you know, you know, our story after I met you in the summer before you were doing a camp for an organization called Flatbill Baseball, and you and I talked for about 40 minutes about uh, hitting after I knew your background. I told you that uh, the first thing I thought is I owe my former players a letter of apology because a lot of the stuff that I had taught them was wrong, unintentionally wrong, but wrong nonetheless. And, you know, the, you, more and I, the more you and I got to know each other, you know, the, the less bad I felt about it because I thought I was a little bit closer than some, but still a long ways to go. Still a, a whole lot to learn. You know, that's one of the things about even this podcast is neither one of us is standing here thinking that we've got it all figured out about the act of hitting a baseball or throwing a baseball. You know, we're going down the, the rabbit hole to figure out, you know, what else there is to learn. But 
back to that, that Christian Yelich thing, he had, I saw him doing a drill, and at the time watching it, it made sense to me, where he would take the knob of the bat and then basically hit the ball straight down on home plate. Right, and he said this was a drill that Barry Bonds gave him that was a drill he swore by. Now, with that method, that would be, you know, what we're saying is that swinging down or putting backspin on the ball. So are you kind of saying that these guys are succeeding in spite of, or do you think some of them are misrepresenting what they think they're doing at the plate? Yeah, just uh, just throw me under the bus on that one. Uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, it if, goes well, into... If Christian Yelich or Barry Bonds hear this podcast and they want to come talk to us, I'm all for that, but I really seriously doubt it. It's just those two guys, right? I, I saw the video. Again, what I, what those guys know about the act hitting a baseball dwarfs mine the time they put into it. But I guess what I would go into is I, I spent a big chunk of time just teaching myself neuroscience, um, you know, I guess just because I wanted to. Uh, but it, it goes into perception is reality. So if they think that drill works i mean it's almost like the placebo effect like keep doing it because mm -hmm. it obviously works um does the physics behind what they're explaining it does actually happen no probably not but it works for them mm -hmm. um so i mean i would recommend it for christian yells because obviously it works for him but oh, i wouldn't absolutely. recommend yeah. it for like my six-year-old son uh, that that just wouldn't be a drill I'd recommend, and there could be other aspects of the drill that they're possibly not sharing with us. Like those there are other be. things to take into consideration, the context behind it. Um, I mean, it, that would be my. I, I, so the so the idea is uh, now. Yeah, again, I'm not. My my goal is not to right or wrong or to, but just uh, just a curiosity, you know, because. In the, in the brief time that I've been looking at, at, at hitting Twitter and hitting stuff like this, you know. Well, stop looking at hitting Twitter. <laughs> yeah. It is, you know, this some of this stuff is as near and dear to people's hearts as religion. Uh, you know, politics, religion, and talking about swinging down on a baseball, those are seem to be three things that get you called a lot of names on Twitter by any number of people. Or if you just disagree with the methods they're doing, they, 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 they can't do that. But... You know, we've talked about swinging down on the ball, and, you know, you've got some information as to why you think or why that you've read that that actually became a thing in the development of the game of baseball. Uh, so. Yeah, I actually spent like <laughs> spent like three hours a day uh, writing that up. Um, so, so very early on, let me pull it up on my thesis so I actually say the right things and give people the right credit. Um, I actually was inspired by um, Swing Kings when I read that book uh, by, let me double check out. That was Jared Diamond. Jared Diamond. Yep. Yeah, like, I mean, that book was amazing. I've already, like, read it several times. Um, I mean, that's what I do at work is, is listen to audiobooks instead of, you know, while I'm cutting chicken and unloading meat trucks. Um, basically, like, the environmental constraints of early baseball like set up the belief that ground balls were the best option and, and at that time they actually were so if, if you go back to like the 1850s and 1860s like they're in desperate need of getting players so they're they're just literally pulling people out of the stands so they're very inexperienced players so they have to make adjustments to the rules so these guys can actually play uh, one of the rules they made that was as long as you catch a, a fly ball on a bounce it's, it's still an out so i mean mm -hmm. That paired with a lot of times, or almost all the time, the pitcher would make the ball before the game, and they would loosely wrap the, the core. Um, the cores were usually made of rubber from old shoes uh, that they got from the shoe factory that one day. And on the East Coast, there was several reports that they actually used the eye of a sturgeon fish as the core of the ball. And that's something I posted on Twitter. Like I, I'm very curious about what the coefficient of restitution is of a of a fish eye. Um, and the curiosity is how you came to that conclusion. <laughs> was it the only round thing that you had that was close by? I mean, uh, yeah, like I mean, is there something completely it's symmetrical about a sturgeon's eye as compared to other animals' eyes? Yeah, I, I mean, FIO, just figure it out. <laughs> um, so uh, they didn't even use a standardized ball until 1876. That's where Spalding starts using the core balls. So if you so they use a standardized ball, but even after that, playing fields are poorly maintained. There's unpredictable hops in ground balls. Um, 
and most of this information I'm, I'm getting from Stamp uh, and and Reimer from uh, their their papers about the dead ball era and the evolution of the baseball. Um, using a little bit more of Diamond's information. Yeah, like I said, the playing fields are poorly maintained, unpredictable hops. The 35 most error-prone seasons in Major League Baseball history happened before 1918. Um, for example, in 1884, there were 14,556 errors in a single season. If you're wondering how that compares in the last 20 years, the, the most errors ever made in a season was 2001, and it was only 3,357. So in the context of that, it makes more sense to hit the ball on the ground. And how you hit the ball on the ground, you swing down. Mm -hmm. Like it, they talk about having a choppy swing. Um, and not only that, but my research from what I've shown is you are much more likely to hit a top spin ground ball from swinging down uh, than anything else. Like it's not even close. Um, so that I mean, so I mean, so there was validity to to the beginning of this, the early stages of baseball. That and I don't, I can't, I don't know if you went over this, but uh, was it not true that you could, if it was filled on one hop, you said that was also considered an out, correct? Yeah. If you, so if a guy hit a pop fly and it bounced and was still caught after the after one bounce, it was still an out. I mean, so why would you ever want to put the ball in the air in that context? On top of that, like the whole, the first I would consider hitting guru or hit however you want to uh label it would be i would call him henry chadwick um he wrote uh, a couple books about the art of base running uh and batting he also wrote uh spalding's official baseball guide in 1896 and he said trying to hit a home run or anyone who tries to slug is stupid that hitting a home run requires no skill whatsoever uh, that that was coming to him, and it was considered brutish. Um, it was considered selfish. If you wanted to be, and these are his words, a scientific and skilled hitter can tap the ball over the infield and bunt the baseball. So he didn't. He obviously didn't see the Nike ad with Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox. No, he digs the long ball. No, Chadwick. Yeah, Chadwick does not dig, dig the long ball. Uh, but it, I mean, it makes sense in the time period. Like if you think of you know, the the industrial revolution and, and like sophistication and knowledge and things like that, that that's what was prized um, during that time period. And so it you can kind of, I mean, being a history teacher for 10 years, you can kind of make the connections as to why he would think that way. Um, yeah. It, the goal for the hitter was to essentially sacrifice your at-bat to mm. advance the runner. <clears throat> Would there be any credence in this is, the idea that, you know, how many fields actually carried fences, right? So the, the object of a home run was probably not hitting it over a fence, was hitting it just over somebody's head long enough that you could outrun them. Does that make sense? So it becomes less of a sport in that moment, less of a sporting, as you would think in that time frame. That's not very sporting. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, uh, you know, so you have the foundation as to why this is being taught down. And so, I mean, why that swing was taught and how it made sense. And the idea, like you said, you know, the, as, a, as a game has progressed, it makes less and less sense to do these things. Again, because it is, it's a more, it, the ball is uniform. The fields are more uniform. Um, well, one of the biggest advances they made that, like, really propelled it was in the 1920s. Like, everyone says they switched to a liver ball, which... They changed the yarn in it. They started using Australian wool. But the one thing that they changed that made the biggest difference is they stopped using one ball for the entire game. And so the ball was not scuffed. The ball wasn't lopsided by the end of the game. They would just switch it out. And so now you have a much livelier ball being used throughout the course of the game, which I think inflated the perception that there was a live ball era, or they, as they call it, the rabbit ball. Okay. No, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now doing this because you've got a lot of data and just continuing as long as we do this i'll be devil's advocate to you and also while I'll getting you in trouble with with other uh, with other as many name people i can get you in trouble with the idea that some of this is going to be said is that's great riggins that's fantastic i, I applaud your work with the milwaukee brewers right what has that got to do with my nine-year-old son what's that got to do with my sophomore in high school son what's that got to do you're talking about the greatest athletes playing the greatest game, 
in the world, and you know, and baseball truly is a worldwide sport, a collection of athletes gathered from around the world. The things that you have proven out, they don't mean as much in the youth game. So what, what to that point? That, yeah, it, that's, that works for Bellinger, right? That's, that's good data on him, but it's not going to work for my son or my daughter. I mean, we hear that all the time is that it doesn't work. And so I actually started um, I actually started doing this research while I was a high school coach in New Mexico. And, and New Mexico, if you don't know for high school, is all wood bats. I didn't know that. Yeah, so if you're a terrible hitting coach, which I was for a very long time, if you're a terrible hitting coach, you're going to get exposed because all your kids hit with wood. And it's varsity all the way down to freshman level. And in New Mexico, eighth graders can play high school sports. Okay. And so you've got these eighth grade kids swinging lumber that can barely hit the ball past the pitcher. So you've got to figure out pretty quick how to teach a kid how to hit. So, like, why do these concepts matter? And you, you've said this quite a bit. At the high school level, ground balls are pretty routine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Especially nice. with, with how good fields are maintained now. Like, they're not just sand lots. I mean, some of them are. I'm not going to lie. I've played on some caliche pits that they yeah. literally just bladed the day before. <laughs> we were out in the middle of nowhere. It was uh, Laguna Acoma in New Mexico. And, and they literally had just bladed a pit like the week before. It's nice. And that's what we played on. <laughs> I had I had one, I had one, you know, not a game of one-upmanship that we had. That, uh, the material on the infield, and there was no grass on the infield. It was a dirt playing surface to the outfield. But the infield was like a type of material that was white, like the same color as the baseball and bone dry. So the guys would get hit ground balls and this cloud of white smoke would, you know, just just appear in front of home base and your shortstop would just stand there you know and a ball would roll 10 feet past him he had no idea couldn't see the ball now we got whipped that game because you know the team we're playing that's their home field you know they've got it completely figured out and they did that team just drove the ball into the dirt uh kind of like the the only mlb thing ground balls were not outs that day because you couldn't see them but you i mean you are right on that i mean the the best teams i've ever had uh, you know, our middle infielders, you know, who see the, the lion's share of the work were 92 to 93% uh, fielding percentage guys, you know, and that's an out, you know, it's not major league level, but no, that's, that's definitely more often than not, that's an out. Well, if you look so. at just the general, like, so let's say you hit a, like you teach ground balls, which is fine. Um, you want to teach ground balls, you're a high school coach, like we're not saying we're the end all be all, like. The, the whole point of this is just to get you to think a little bit more and do a little bit more research. Mm -hmm. One of the thing, one of the worst things I did is I just accepted everything that I had ever been taught as fact. And then when I realized it didn't work, I, I wanted to know why. And uh, when, I, when I kept uh, track of it, we, we did a whole season and what we found was ground balls in 5A baseball in New Mexico uh, they, they were outs like 80% of the time a ground ball was an out mm -hmm. um, and it it just blew my mind I'm like you know I've been telling these kids to swing down and put the ball on the ground and it, it doesn't work uh, and then everybody gets that mixed up and they they say we'll put the ball in the air and they think oh it has to be a pop fly like we're telling kids to hit line drives yes. 10 degrees to, to 30 degrees at the most and, and to simplify it is hey we're gonna hit line drives over the infield like if you just look at the surface area available to the infield as opposed to the outfield, and you had never played baseball ever in your life, where are you most likely going to want to hit the ball? Right. Where there's the largest surface area available is the outfield, and it's only covered by three people. I think some of the things, I think that's get lost in this, in this whole conversation about hit the ball in the air, is, you know, the pendulum swings where you're just going to pop up. No, you understand, I, I line drive is a batted ball in the air. You know, that's, you know, we, we swing these pendulums or people when you're making an argument one way or the other is, well, I'd rather my kids not pop out. Well, I'm not here to help your son, daughter, your player. I'm not here to advocate they should pop out either. But again, you're right. A line drive is a ball, is a batted ball in the air. And it has, I think by your research, showed the high, line drive has the highest batting average. Yeah, it's, a, it's got uh, the highest batting average, the highest WOBA. Um, weighted on base uh, average like it it's it pretty much wins every offensive category except for home runs fly balls win the win the home runs uh, I think the biggest difference that that people would see 
is like in Major League Baseball, and this is where where their argument of that those guys are freaks is, is right. In Major League Baseball, guys can hit high line dr- or hit line drives and then miss hit a pop fly and it's still going to go out. Yeah. In, at the high school level, like little Johnny can hit line drives, but if he miss hits it, he's not going to hit one out of the park. So I mean, you could you could blend that with we're going to hit low line drives, but if we miss, we would rather it be on the ground. I think that would be more beneficial to. Um, a high school team, or even figure out which kids are your high exit velo kids. I mean, you, you know, I've got some kids that I work with here in the panel and they're hitting the ball 100 miles an hour. And I'm like, how's nobody heard of you? Like, you hit yeah. the ball farther than I can drive on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, so even like if, if you were to take a kid and you would look at, you can easily do this as a high school coach. Take your lineup and, and have someone track over the course of a season their ground balls and their line drives and uh which one has a higher batting average you just keep it simple do does this kid's ground balls have a higher batting average or does this line drives and i guarantee almost a hundred percent of the time it's going to be their line drives have the highest batting average or the yeah. highest offensive performance and what you said there i don't think you know again a lot hopefully we can do this for a very long time uh which is not every kid that you coach needs to be swinging the bat at the same angle of attack right the the exit velocity at which their ball or how fast they swing determines the varying the the angle of attack that they can have and again i mean that's a different conversation about that kind of stuff but yeah we're not they're not all cookie cutters right you're not suggesting and, and i'm not suggesting that everybody has one swing that achieves one result because we're not all the same when it comes across that there's room in this game for all kinds of you know all kinds of hitters you know, uh, on our way over here talking about it, you know, as unsexy as it is, I loved watching Ichiro Suzuki take at bats. You know, his goal was not to hit the ball over the fence, although when I heard from his BP stuff, he was absolutely capable of that. Uh, his, his goal was line drives and base hits and put, and put uh, the pressure on the pitcher and let other guys kind of move him around those big moments. There's room in that game for guys like that. So, again, I, I think it's – we're not advocating a cookie-cutter style of hitter that they all swing the bat the same way because this is the way that uh, Acuna, Ronald Acuna Jr. swings the bat, right? Well, yeah, when you when you can exit velo 114 miles an hour off your bat, then we'll look at some different things for you. So, uh, you know, but again, that goes back to the question is, is this information and, and what, you're, what, we, what you know about Major League in your short time and in your conversations and following the study, does that correlate to the youth? Does that correlate to high school? Does that correlate to 12U ball, 9U ball, these concepts about hitting the ball the way, you know, just keep throwing in Justin Turner, you know, who's pretty heavily featured in the Swing Kings book from Jared Diamond. Is there value in giving the drills and the information that Justin Turner knows about to a 9U kid? Uh, about hitting a baseball i mean for long-term development yes like you're you're teaching them a skill set that they're going to become extremely proficient in like that's um one of the knocks that that we have with our youth development or, or basically youth sports in the united states as a whole is like our kids are just terrible movers and they're terrible athletes because they've been forced to do what is thought of as the ideal movement and it takes their athletic ability away. Mm-hmm. They're not allowed to improvise. Um, they're not allowed to just be an athlete. Like with football, it's be a good, be a good athlete in basketball. It's be a good athlete in baseball. It's have good mechanics. Yeah, you, you can't be a good athlete in baseball. You have to have good mechanics. Yeah, I, I've uh, I've never seen a basketball practice where they broke down how to jump effectively. It was essentially you just go out there and jump and jump yeah. as hard, jump as high as you possibly can. Allow them to now, self-organize. Exactly. Now, I do understand in track and field and stuff like that, there is a correct way to do everything. There's like but, parameters to work with. Them. Right. Like, I mean, that's part of the reason why Latin America has so many players coming over because they've got so many kids that have just been allowed to self-organize and, and develop skills. Like our idea of getting better at baseball is go play six games on the weekend at all these ridiculous tournaments and and practice one time a week where you just take weak BP, mm-hmm. it doesn't work. Like if you're a terrible 
hitter on Thursday at the six o'clock game, you're gonna be a terrible hitter Sunday yeah. at two o'clock when you're playing in the toilet bowl game. When we uh, when we would go into games, you know, I didn't say this on game day because you don't give them too much to think about. I would tell players, say, listen, guys, if we have a game on Friday and you can't hit the curveball on Thursday night, I said we're not gonna wake up magically on Friday and you're gonna be a great curveball hitter. You know, so the idea for the older players was to learn how to work around your weakness because. We're not going to be able to wave a wand. You're not going to walk in and go, you know what? I've hit a curveball in two years. I'm feeling really good about this guy. <laughs> you know, so we use this thing as to you know keep yourself out of curveball counts if you can, or curveball situations, uh, which is a little easier to predict at the high school level when guys don't have as much command. But you're right. I mean, it's uh, you, if you have a tremendously set of bad habits, that set of six games only ceases to reinforce that set of bad habits, and. Uh, you know, you talk about the Latin American player. I, I think also that is probably why you see them have such joy playing the game, as opposed to the American ball player. Uh, yeah, because it's, it's it's coached out of us. It's uh, you know, I've seen in the little times that we have worked with kids here. Uh, we had a kid uh, yesterday broke his record for exit velo, and you know, and you know, we literally had to say, it's okay to celebrate that man. You just ha you hit a milestone. It's okay to be happy about. It. It's okay to to whoop, to clap, to smile, anything, because this is a thing you've been working towards, but it's kind of not ingrained in the American ball player to play with that kind of uh, effervescence, so to speak. What I told you that, that story that I was giving a lesson, uh, and there was a guy in a cage next to me, and his this kid is like, I don't know, like seven, eight years old, and the kid's in tears, and literally saying, I don't understand what you want me to do. And then to make it worse, his dad's back there yelling at him to just do it. And like, it was the most uncomfortable like, why would that kid ever want to come back and no. play baseball? Like, that's not enjoyable. Like, I mean, my kids are crushing bu buckets. Like, we're yeah. trying to break stuff. And, like, that's what kids want to do. Like, it needs to be enjoyable and yeah. not – I mean, it's like it it's is. like a job. Exactly. Well, it's a game. It is a game. It's a game at the high school level. It's a game at the college level. It's a game at Major League Baseball. It's, it's a game at the end of the day. And if you can't have fun playing a game, then why are you playing a game? You know, you go back to, you go back like memories of my brothers and we, you know, your older, my older brothers would like make up some weird game, which would end up with me always getting punched or something. <laughs> now that's the definition of a bad game. And I remember like, I don't want to play this game anymore. That's not how baseball should be at any type of either private lessons or field work where kids walk around going, where's, why are, why are we doing this? You know, the back of our shirts, you know, you know, like what you said is drop nukes and get snow cones. You know, where's the snacks? Right? Where's the snow cones? Where's the fun? So uh, I know we, we there's a rabbit hole we just chased right there. We could have a whole podcast on. Right, yeah. kinda, I, we, well, I had my, my first experience with youth baseball with my son playing on, on your Patriots team. And that was the amazing thing to me of how like intense these other parents were about these games. And I'm like, I like, I mean, they're getting on me because I'm not aggressive enough with sending kids to, to get the second, I'm like, I mean, I told you, I'm, the only thing I'm aggressive about is what type of ice cream we're getting after the game. Like, that's, <laughs> what type of snacks we got? I think it's the first question you ask, because if your son want to play for me, what's the snack situation look like? Yeah. Hey, that's a team mom. Let me talk to the team mom and see if we can get extra backs. I, I'm with you. I uh, And that is, is, as long as I've ever coached, as long as I've ever been around the game, which I think I'm going on almost two decades now, of being around this game across different levels. Uh, the thing that has always stoked my ire the most is the individual, whether it be the, uh, the, the, the parent, the coach, or the umpire that takes the attention away from the kids playing the game. That's the thing that uh, it just, it, you, I'm, I'm a pretty mild manner for the most part, but that's the thing that gets my blood up where. You know, it's a, it becomes a look at me for that coach or look at me for that parent or look at me for that umpire because I'm like, you had your time in the sun. That time for you is over. It's, it's his time now. So just let him have his time without you trying to hog any of that spotlight but chasing those things. But uh, kind of last couple things we're talking about here going on 40 minutes, so which is a lot. You know, it's gone quicker than I thought it would. So uh, It would be fine. Our two listeners will be okay with it. Yeah, they'll be okay. We'll break it up. After we edit out all the uhs and mm that I've stated, it'll go right back down to 20. So at Heavy Metal Baseball, which you and I are the founders of Heavy Metal Baseball, M-E-T-T-L-E, -T -T -E, Metal Baseball. No, we didn't spell it wrong. Robert, real quick, the definition of metal. 
Uh, it's somebody who responds to a difficult situation in a resilient and spirited way. There you go. So we have a double entendre yeah. in the name. Pretty clever. Our, our, the, our, credit, the credit to that one goes to Ed Lucas, the hitting coordinator for the Brewers. Uh, he busted that word out on us uh, one day at spring training, and I absolutely loved it. Um, learned a lot of new words at spring training, like uh, banged. banged. I, did, I didn't know that meant canceled. Like we had a rain day one day, and I go in there, and Ed's like, hey, uh, you know, things have been banged. And I'm like, oh, cool. So like... So, so I'll just see you out there, right? <laughs> no, it's been banged. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I had to go get clarification from somebody else because I you know, didn't want my direct supervisor <laughs> knowing that I was an idiot and didn't know what bang meant. Bingo. Thought you knew, you thought you, I thought you were around baseball. Evidently not. Evidently <laughs> not, not enough. Well, what was it? Dead arm BP. Yeah. Had no idea what that meant. When you said that first to me when we first met, I thought you were just making jokes <laughs> about like how, how hard I could throw a ball anymore. I'm like, yeah, I know it too. You just want to keep pointing it out. I thought it was like a special pitching machine or so. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, we're you're definitely not getting invited back. I'm now. definitely not. Yeah, I just ruined all my chances <laughs> at any professional job ever. So Heavy Metal Baseball, which you and I co-founded, uh, we have several pieces of technology. We have a hit tracks. Our players hit with that, or they and they hit at the same time using a blast motion sensor. Almost everything. Or we have a, rap, a hitting rap soda that we'll measure stuff with. You know, a lot of the things that comes around that is you're going to overwhelm the player with this information. You're going to give them too much data, which is going to lead to them kind of a paralysis, anal- you know, paralysis by analysis. Um, so what's your response to that? You know, kind of what have you seen and what's your thought process of that is, are, are, these, things, are these things just too much for hitters? Should we just... Not be showing hitters this information. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's it's always that's always one of the biggest things that I hear, and it's real big in like the softball community. Is I don't want my hitters thinking about launch angle, or this is too much for them to think about. And, and my question is always like, why wouldn't you want to simplify? Like this simplifies it. The kid doesn't have to look to you for feedback. Like he just knows right away that yes, that was a good hit. And I mean it. it it helps you pinpoint exactly what they should focus on. I mean, why wouldn't you want the kids to be able to think for themselves? And I used to be like that. I used to want to completely control what my high school kids did. But I remember taking a step step back one year because a guy that I coached with, I was the pitching coach, and, and I realized that these kids don't want to take risks. They don't want to lay out for balls because they're afraid I'm, I'm going to chew them out. Mm-hmm. And... So when I finally got a head job, that was one of the things that I was like, you know what? Like, just take a chance. Like, just just take a chance. Just lay out for that ball or try to throw out the guy at home. If you miss a cutoff one time, like, okay. But if it's a if it becomes a pattern, like, we need to fix that. But kids started stealing bases on their own, and they were right more times than they weren't. And a lot of times we would ask them when they make a mistake why they did something a certain way, and their answer a lot of times would blow me away was – they were thinking the right thing. They just made the wrong choice. Yeah. Or the other end of it was they had a completely wrong mindset, which that ultimately goes back to me as the coach. That's my fault that they think that way. Yeah. No, one of the things that we lim- I, you know, I helped eliminate was we would have conversations. And I was big on having conversations, even in the game, just real briefly, which was, why would you do that? Right? Or why did you let that pitch go? Or why did you swing at that pitch? What were you thinking? And it became an area where you didn't, you weren't allowed to say, I don't know, right? Because I don't know was the kid's answer. And you, you know what you were trying to achieve there. Uh, even if it's wrong, just tell me. Or if you think it's wrong, because you, you're right. You may have had the absolute right idea, just poor execution on the idea. Uh, and a lot of what I found sometimes where the, where the uh, problem came with the athlete is, is through things I had inadvertently, like, you know, the law of unintended consequences uh, had kind of bred out of them because they missed getting that extra jump on that stealing that base because uh, they were afraid of getting thrown out. But their thought process was right. They just hesitated, you know. And I had to rebuild back again where you go, no, it's okay. You know, uh, your your mistakes made being aggressive will live with those mistakes, and we're not going to come down on those mistakes. You know, the only things that we began to be real hard on were mistakes made in timidity, you know, after we established that culture. But Well, I remember the moment that that, that first clicked for me we're, we're playing is my first head coaching job uh the kid's name was travis 
um, and I gave him a squeeze sign. And sure enough, our guy's barreling down the line, and he pulls back and rips a double off the wall. Luckily, he didn't kill a kid. Yeah. We had runs on second and third, and he rips a double off the wall and ends up getting to third on an overthrow. And I, you know, at first I'm pissed off because he didn't listen to me. And I'm 21 years old at the time, and I'm a head coach at a 5A school, so I think that I'm it. And um, finally, I, I calm down and I ask him, why did you swing? And he was like, coach, I knew what was coming. I, I've hit this kid my whole life. Like, I knew I would do that. And it, that was the first time that it dawned on me is maybe sometimes I don't know it, everything. Like, maybe the kids should be allowed to make decisions. Maybe mm-hmm. players should be allowed to make decisions every now and again. Well, what, what do you make of the, you know, because, you know, we're there's a lot of coaches that want that. There are a lot of coaches of, that are not going to like this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what, but what do you, you know, and in, in, in full disclosure, both of us have – uh, well, I still I, high school coaches. You spent, like you said, your your Twitter bio says enough time in the uh, in, in uh, minor league baseball get a sunburn. Um, I've got a, a, a travel organization that I help out with, right? So uh, a lot of the stuff that I've come up with is when you've come across is, is trial by error, is watching it really screw up uh, and really messing something up in a bad way. But you know, kind of that question as we as we wrap this up. Sometimes I, as, as we're making preparations or, or we're doing some of the stuff we're doing, I hear this phrase uh, kind of uh, underhanded or, or behind my back, not, you know, but loud enough for us to hear it. This is a gimmick, right? All this is a gimmick. I can't figure out what, what gimmick are you going to run us up with this time. Let's get back to the old school way. Uh, we don't need all this stuff. And, you know, you're going to pay you. This is just too much for, for the player. You know, I'll, I'll tell you my personal experience with this as a guy who didn't come from a technology background and, you know, bought my first blast motion sensor probably, you know, going on eight months ago. Um, you know, put it on my daughter's bat. And I think the first time that we ever went and, and saw you, we were getting swing speeds at 43 miles an hour. And within about a three-month thing, just because of her knowledge, that, in, that number was low that numbers increase to 55 to 58 in one top out at 63.9. And that's with not me doing a whole lot to her. I'm not, I'm not yelling at her or saying, hey, swing the bat 62.2 miles an hour. It's swing the bat hard and let's see what happens. So in my own thing, it's, it's, it's been almost the opposite thing of I've almost freed her up to think about very little when she gets in the box outside of just – I'm going to hit the ball hard uh, and now I, I learn I know how it feels to swing the bat hard to hit the ball hard but uh, what do you I mean just real quick I mean anything so I can get you in trouble again right I know uh, what do we say to these guys like hey this is useless we can't be doing this this is too much uh, I, I think I mean I don't know if they would want to I've, I have had haven't had much success in this area either uh, but just from a teacher standpoint like kids respond better or make adjustments faster the quicker feedback is given to them and that's from a pure educational standpoint now when you tie that in with athletic performance it's the same thing like i remember in high school when i learned a change up it took me almost a year before i felt comfortable throwing it in a game well now with like like the pitch design stuff and the hitting reps or pitching reps soda and all those things like these kids can learn a pitch in like a week and then be comfortable feel comfortable enough to throw it in a game i mean i was that was completely foreign to me. And so the feedback loop and the performance loop are just, it's a lot shorter of a window. Like with the blast sensor, if you want to work on a specific swing flaw, they can pair that feel versus real. Like this is what I feel is happening, but what is really happening? And so you can start to pair like what their perception is with what really is happening. And they become like more aware of how to adjust their actions to certain outcomes. Yeah, and I've, again, I've witnessed that uh, same thing with the softball uh, teams that, I, that I help with my daughters on is there's a, a young girl on there that she swore to me she was swinging the bat hard. And, you know, I, I just knew she had – I just – she has more in her. She's a very athletic girl. And uh, we got the blast motion sensor out, and we put it on the entire team and went through drills. And once she saw that she was 10 to 12 miles an hour slower than her peers, it finally dawned on her that she wasn't swinging the bat hard right there was a light bulb moment i can say it all day you're not swinging hard enough 
right? That is the lowest hanging fruit right now. That's why we're grounded out. We're not hitting the ball well. We're just not putting enough intention behind that bat. And she goes, no, no, no. I feel like I'm giving enough. Well, there it is. And, you know, as you say, after one practice does not make mastery of any set skill. By the end of that practice, we had jumped up about 45 miles an hour. Now, it's not going to stay that way unless we repeat those things over and over again. But that immediate feedback that she was able to get ended all arguments about how she felt about what she was doing. Instead, among her peer group, she says, oh, my goodness, even on my own team, I'm lagging behind some of these girls by up to 12 miles an hour or so. Uh, I've witnessed that. It's just it is. It gets frustrating on the uh, the backside of it to hear it over and over again. We don't need it. It's not usable, and it's too much. But I think that a lot of it is like they they hear it from somebody that's credible, and so they get confirmation bias that you know this guy said it, so it has to be true. He has more believability than you because you're you know you're Joe Schmo cutting chicken at the grocery store, yeah. uh, like literally. <laughs> Um, but I mean, even the, as far as like the neuroscience stuff I did with, with vision, like your working memory can drastically affect your visual perception. So if you remember something the wrong way as a hitter, your prediction of the trajectory of the ball is going to be wrong. Like if you misunderstand pitch physics, like it was, it was amazing to me how much memory is tied into your visual like performance and how much that can affect other systems like 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 i said perception is reality and if you have the wrong perception of what's really happening at contact or you have the wrong perception of athletic performance in general you're gonna be chasing the wrong things so i mean it's important to know like what's going to get me on the field Mm -hmm. and i mean for right now it's bat speed and exit velocity as as a hitter and um for pitching it's it's throwing velocity um, and I mean, that's just the simplified version. Like, so how, how can you use these high level concepts for a, a younger kid? Like teach your kid how to swing the bat hard and hit line drives over the infield and teach your kid to throw hard. Well, what we're going to, we're going to stop right there. Cause I think that you and I, as much as we know, we could just keep this thing going. We want to stretch this thing out. We want to talk about all these things going forward, pitching design, uh, hitting drills and stuff like that, because we do want to give. Uh, information to people out there so we just kind of run the introduction of who we are uh, what we think and obviously this is you know almost an hour so it's not everything we think but uh, you know I think it's everything we think we think right now you know always open to interpretation you know so uh, I'm Jared this is Robert we're signing off heavy metal baseball down the rabbit hole as we say with everything we end up it's adapt or die